morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We've been going verse by verse through this little book of Jude for quite a while now. I, I thought this would be done by summer, but I don't know. It's just, all right. And we, we've kind of been focused on Jude 7 the last couple of weeks. Um, we've already done two messages on this verse. One on the judgment of Sodom, and the second one on the Bible on homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Well, in the first message on the judgment of Sodom, we talked briefly about this phrase, undergoing the punishment of eternal fire, and we talked somewhat about what that means in the doctrine of hell. Well, this morning, I want to go back to this phrase and attempt to discuss more fully the doctrine of hell. I've never done a message on hell, and due to the many questions I get about this, I thought it'd probably be good to take a deeper look at this, to just spend some time looking at what the Bible says about this. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And as always, I'm asking you not to believe me, okay? (laughs) Until you study it out for yourself. I'm asking you to be a Berean. A Berean takes in information. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't reject it. He takes the information in. He looks into this. Then he makes an informed decision. And I think that's so important that you let the Scriptures determine what you believe. Now, to just be very frank with you, I've kind of avoided this subject of hell. You say, well, why would you avoid that? Well, it's because I'm already a preteristic, superlapsarian, Calvinistic, non-lordship, geocentric, who uses Yahweh and Yeshua, and now i got to add something else to my, you know, little repertoire here, okay? <laughs> Listen, I do not, you know, it seems like the more I study the Bible, the more I get pushed away from mainstream Christianity. I'm not trying to be different. I'm just trying to be biblical. And it's my conviction that the church is really messed up on a lot of teaching, or lack of it. Alright? So, I want to begin this morning with what I think is a very profound quote from J.I. Packer. This quote is worth our understanding, it's worth our meditation, I think to understand this quote is to gain a huge advantage in your Bible study. J.I. Packer says, We do not start our Christian lives by working out our faith for ourselves. You might think you do, you don't. He says, It is mediated to us by Christian tradition. In other words, as soon as you become a Christian, you already know some things because you hear them all the time. He says it's mediated in the form of sermons, books, and established patterns of church life and fellowship. We read our Bible in light of what we have learned from these sources. We approach Scripture with minds already formed by the mass of accepted opinions and viewpoints with which we have come into contact in both the church and the world. It is easy to be unaware that it has happened. It is hard even to begin to realize how profoundly tradition in this sense has molded us. But we are forbidden to become enslaved to human tradition, either secular or Christian, whether it be Catholic tradition or critical tradition or ecumenical tradition. We may never assume the complete rightness of our own established ways of thought and practice and excuse ourselves the duty of testing and reforming them by Scripture. You know, we have these ideas, we come into the Christian faith with these ideas, and we go to the Bible and then we seem to find them in the Bible. 
which we might never do if we didn't have them to start with. So we have to examine the Scripture in light of the Scripture. We have to test everything by the text. What does the Bible say? It doesn't matter what other people say. What does the Scripture say? And we must be open to allowing it to shatter our views. As Christians, hopefully our desire is to know Yahweh in an intimate way. Through His Word. If He taught it, we want to understand it. Now, most Christians believe there is a place of eternal fire and torment called hell, which will be the ultimate fate of the wicked. But, does the Bible say anything about hell? What does it say about hell? You ready? Hang on. Nothing. Zip. Zero. Nada. Okay? You say, what? No, listen. The word hell is not in the original languages of the Bible. If you see the word hell in your Bible, it's because you have a bad translation. Now, in the King James Version, hell is mentioned 54 times. This is the version I started with. You know? And so, I'm like, I read hell everywhere. So, people say, hell's not in the Bible. Of course it is. Look, it's right there. But when we read hell... All kinds of ideas come into our mind. We think of flames and we think of people screaming and yelling throughout eternity in this burning place where they live on forever. Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, hell is found 31 times in the King James Version Old Testament where it's translated from the Hebrew word Sheol. Now, Sheol is the place of death. Usually referring to the grave. How you take that and turn it into a, a, to, a place of torment and fire and all, I don't know. I'm not going to give you references for this for time's sake, but if you get the notes, all the references are in the notes. All right, The Tanakh uses the word Sheol to refer to a place in the depths of the earth. The expressions go down or brought down are used 20 times in connection with Sheol. The depths of Sheol are mentioned six times. Four times Sheol is described as the furthest point from heaven. Often Sheol is parallel to the pit. Nine times it's parallel with death. Sheol is described in terms of overwhelming floods, water of waves. It's kind of hard to get water of waves and hell together. I'm not sure how that works out. Sometimes Sheol is pictured as a, as a hunter setting snares for a victim. It's pictured binding them with cords, snatching them from the land of the living. Sheol is a prison with bars, a place of no return, People could go to Sheol alive. But nowhere do we see Sheol as a fiery place of torment. Now, why did the King James translators translate Sheol as hell in certain places? Well, they did so because they're more involved in interpretation than translation. Listen, everybody has a bias. And that goes to translators also. So when a translator is translating something, they feel a certain way, they hold a certain doctrines, they kind of move, move those doctrines into Scripture to help you understand those doctrines. That's why we have to have multiple translations to read from, get a different idea on what's going on there. Now, in the King James New Testament, the word hell is found 23 times. It is translated from the words Hades, which is the Greek equivalent of Sheol. Hades and Sheol, same thing. It's a place of the dead. Ten times it's translated that way. It's translated from the Greek word Tartaro once, and twelve times from Gehenna. Now, we looked at Gehenna in our study of Jude 7 a couple weeks ago, 
We saw that Gehenna is a place that has become identified in people's minds as a filthy, accursed place where useless, evil things were destroyed. It was a defiled place, and it became the garbage dump of Jerusalem. Fires smoldered there constantly. A repulse of ugly worms ate the garbage. It becomes a symbol of judgment. Gehenna is used 12 times in the New Testament. 11 in the Gospels, once by James, where James says the tongue is set on fire by Gehenna. 11 times in the Gospel, they're not speaking of final punishment. They're speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. If you read all the texts that deal with Gehenna, we're not going to do this today because we dealt with Gehenna a couple weeks ago, but he connects it, you see that Yeshua is connecting back to Jeremiah and Jeremiah's prophecy of judgment. And it's dealing with the judgment of Jerusalem. Every use of Gehenna, except for James, is from Yeshua speaking to Jews that live in or around Jerusalem. It is never spoken to Gentiles. It is never used outside the Gospels because Gehenna was the city dump outside Jerusalem. And to take that city dump and turn it into hell, I think, is a stretch. So none of the King James Version uses of hell have anything to do with a place of fiery torment. Again, Gehenna was a city dump which burned constantly, so there were flames there, but it was a local dump where they threw trash. And if you understand the idea of fire, when you throw something in it, it burns up and it's gone. So I said, as I said earlier, the word hell should not be in your Bible. Alright? The King James, as I said, though, uses hell 54 times. The New American Standard uses hell 13 times, only in the New Testament. The ESV uses it 14 times. They picked up one extra from the NASB. But here's what I like. Young's literal translation does not have the word hell in it, not one time. Because it's a literal translation. He's not trying to give you his interpretation of things. He's just trying to take the Bible and literally translate it. It's, it's hard to read Young's because it's so literal, but it's very, very helpful, and I would recommend everybody, if you're interested in Bible study alongside your Bible, have a Young's Literal that you can compare things with. It'll make a huge difference in your understanding of things. So, to answer my original question, what does the Bible say about hell? Nothing. Nothing. The word hell's not in the original translation of the Bible. It's not in those languages. So, But here's a better question that we need to ask. What does the Bible say about the destiny of the wicked? Or we could ask it, what happens to people at death who have not trusted Christ? Now this, the Bible speaks about, okay? Now there's two main views of the end of the wicked and where they go, alright? One view, the predominant view, is called eternal conscious torment. This says that when people die without Christ, they forever and ever, ever and ever always, amen, are tortured, and they are conscious, they are awake, and they are in pain forever. Eternal conscious torment. That's one view. The other view, the view I hold to, is that they perish. Now, let's look at the Tanakh. Let's start with the Tanakh and see what it has to say about the destiny of the wicked. And then we're going to look at the intertestamental period between the Old and the New. And then we're going to look at the New Testament and see what these, the literature tells us about these things. What does the Tanakh teach us about the end of the wicked? Let me just say this. You will never get the traditional view of hell, eternal conscious torment, from the Tanakh. From the Bible that the Jews read, you will never get this idea. It just isn't there. 
So what does it say about the wicked? Well, it gives us a lot of pictures of the wicked. Psalm 37, let's start there. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not anxious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. So they're going to wither, they're going to fade. That's what it says about them, okay? It doesn't say anything about eternal conscious torment or fire or any of that kind of stuff. It just says they're going to wither away, they're going to fade. 37, 9, and 10. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for Yahweh, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully at his place, and he will not be there. He's going to be cut off. He's going to be no more. 37.20, but the wicked will perish, and the enemies of Yahweh will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Now, the Hebrew word perish here is the word avad. According to Brown, Driver, and Briggs definition, perish, it means vanish, go away, be destroyed, die, be exterminated. And the word vanish here is from kala, which according to Brown, Driver, and Briggs definition means to accomplish, to cease, to consume, to determine, to end, to fail, to finish. Now, do you see any hint of eternal conscious torment in these verses? No, I, I mean, they're not there. This is, these verses are talking about the end of the wicked. This is what happens to the wicked. I've seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in a native soil, Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he couldn't be found. He passed away, and he was no more. It doesn't say he passed away and he suffered forever because of his wickedness. The psalmist could have said that. Now, the words no more are from the Hebrew ayin, which is from a primitive root meaning to be nothing or not exist. That's what the Hebrew means. He passed away and he did not exist. He was gone. The psalmist doesn't say they passed away and are tormented. No, he passed away and he no longer existed. All right, let's look at Job 4, 8 and 9. According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. All right, so they perish, they come to an end. This seems to be a consistent theme throughout the Tanakh. Speaking of the wicked, Job says, He perishes forever like his refuge. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Now this is interesting here. The word refuse here is from the Hebrew gelel, and it means dung. He perishes like dung. She's gone. An interesting picture. Look at Psalm 73, 27. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. So they perish, they are destroyed. Now when you destroy something, it's gone. Alright? Isaiah 26, 14. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore you punish and destroy them. And you have wiped out the remembrance of them. So they have been punished. They have been destroyed. The Tanakh says that the wicked are like, and he uses metaphors or similes. He said they're like the grass that quickly withers. They're like the green herb that fades away. They're like 
refuge, dung. They're like chaff. A couple other ones he says here, they're as a snail which melts away. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? That's kind of a gross picture. Like the miscarriage of a woman which never see the sun. Psalm 68.2 says, they're as smoke, as wax melts, the wicked perish. You think of smoke, it just disappears. Wax, it just melts away. They perish. Listen, there are at least 70 metaphors or similes of what the end of the wicked will be like in the Tanakh. At least 70 of them. Well, what do these pictures tell us? Well, I think the question we have to ask is, will reality resemble the picture? Because what is the point of the picture? It's to teach us something, right? If the wicked are to be eternally tortured in flames, shouldn't the picture somehow reflect that idea? I mean, shouldn't some of the pictures of the wicked be if they're going to be tormented forever? And the wicked will be like a skewer, a meat on a skewer that roasts over the open flame. Oh, okay, I could get that. Or the wicked will be like those who are thrown into a, a cauldron of boiling oil. Oh, yeah, okay, I get that picture. But this idea of smoke and perishing and melting and vanishing and being like, they're just gone. I don't understand the idea of using pictures if they re- have no resemblance to reality. And that's not what metaphors or similes about. They resemble, they teach us, they give us a picture. So, again, you won't get this picture of eternal conscious torment from the Tanakh. Well, let's look at how they viewed the end of the wicked in the Second Temple Judaism period, the intertestamental literature, the, the writings that took place between Malachi and Matthew. There's a 400-year gap here of biblical writings. And we first of all, we have the Apocrypha. You, any of you familiar with the Apocrypha? You know what that is? I think when you hear Apocrypha, think of the Catholic Bible. The Catholic Bible has these extra books in it. You know, we, we think they're just from the Catholic Bible. But these writings are not found in the Hebrew Tanakh. But they are contained in some manuscripts of the Septuagint. Some of the Septuagint manuscripts have these. Alright? Um, most of these books were declared to be Scripture by the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent in 1545 to 1563. Though the Protestant Church rejects them having any kind of authority whatsoever. But the Catholic Church accepted these, so there's several of these books are in the Catholic Bible. Alright? Well, here's what we, here's what's interesting. All references in the Apocrypha to the end of the wicked is that they perish. Just like we just read in the Tanakh. They're gone, except for one reference. And Judith 16.17 talks about eternal torment. So we have one little reference in the Apocrypha that gives us this idea. Now, here's what's interesting. This is the first picture that we get of eternal torment In literature that's even associated with the Bible. Nothing in the Tanakh. We don't have it there. We get it. starts showing up in the intertestamental period. Then we have the pseudepigrapha. I think you're all probably familiar with the pseudepigrapha. Um, it literally means falsely ascribed writings. All right, The people who are named in the, like, uh, Enoch. Enoch didn't write it. Okay, But he took his name because it has some power, has some authority, gives you some oomph to the writings. You know, so they're... That's what pseudepigrapha means, falsely ascribed writings. I think they're, I think they're valuable. We'll talk about this in coming weeks as, because Jude actually quotes from the pseudepigrapha. But if you look at this literature, this literature is equally split between the teaching of the wicked perishing and them being tormented. So you find both in these pseudepigrapha writings. Alright? 
But then you have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, this is important. Uh, in 1947, a Bedouin shepherd, he's walking around, bored, picks up a rock and throws a rock into a cave. And something interesting happens. You know, he doesn't hear it hit a rock or hit the dust. He hears a pottery shatter. So that's interesting. So he goes in there. What's in there? He finds all these different pottery that have scrolls in them. And they have found a collection of 981 different texts, different scrolls in these caves in the immediate vicinity of the ancient settlement of Qumran in the West Bank. All right. The Dead Sea Scrolls include three types of documents. They have the earliest existing copies of the books from the Hebrew Bible. I mean, these date back to prior to anything we have. All right. And they match up with what we have of the Bible in the Tanakh. All right. Uh, other copies are early works that are not part of the Tanakh, and then there's some works related specifically to a sect of Qumran there uh, during the Second Temple period. The Dead Sea Scrolls, again, a lot of these are just copies from the Tanakh. They give a consistent picture of perishing. No eternal torment, you're not going to find that in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You're not going to pull out any of them, the 981 texts, and you're going to find any hint of eternal torment in the Dead Sea Scrolls. All right, one more rabbinic literature. This would be the Babylonian Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, the Mishnah. This literature seems to support both views, that of the wicked perishing and that of eternal torment. So there's not a single Jewish view. The Jews seem to go back and forth uh, on both of these views. So throughout the Hebrew Scripture, we have no hint of the end of the wicked being eternal conscious torment. But once we get to the intertestamental period, we start to see some indication of it. Why? What happened? Why do we start seeing these here? Well, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. All right? I'm going to explain to you why it came on, this, on the scene. But let's first of all, what does the New Testament say about the end of the wicked? Where did the New Testament writers get their information? Where did the New Testament writers get their information? They got it from the teaching of the apostles based on Moses and the prophets. These guys were steeped. In the literature of Moses, this is where they got their information. They didn't teach things new. They taught what the prophets said would happen. These Their writings reflect the truth of the Tanakh. Alright? So let's look at Matthew 3. Start out here in Matthew. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There, said that people say, there you go. There we got hellfire, right? John's talking about hell. No, he's not. Listen, he is talking about the fiery destruction of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70. He is warning the religious leaders of Israel. The fact was the axe is already laid to the root of the tree indicates there's nearness of this judgment. When John talks about baptism with the Spirit and fire, he's talking about that 40-year period of the Lord's ministry. I mean, of the, the transition period there. Alright? That 40 years started out with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It ended in fire when Jerusalem was destroyed. That ended the Old Covenant. So John the Baptist comes on the scene as a prophet of Yahweh after 400 years of silence. There's been no prophets, been no word of the Lord. He comes on the scene. The Tanakh closes with the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is one long, terrible impeachment against the nation Israel. All right, Malachi is a prophet of doom. Coming judgment is the burden of the word 
to Israel by Malachi. Let's look at a couple of these. In Malachi 3, 5, he says, Then I will draw near to you in judgment. All right, this is what the issue is. Yahweh is warning Israel about a coming judgment. He's using Malachi. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. This is stuff that's all going on in Israel. And God's covenant people are performing as sorceries. Against the adulterers. Against those who swear falsely. Against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages. The widow. The orphan. Those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. For once is, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoer will be chaff. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So here we have, the, he said, they're gonna, evildoer is gonna be like chaff. He's gonna set them ablaze. Now, right away people say, well, this sounds like hell. I mean, there's gonna, we got fire here anyway, right? No, again, he says the evildoer will be chaff. The reference to set them ablaze is speaking about a coming judgment. And this is exactly what happened. Jerusalem was burned to the ground. This verse points to an approaching crisis in the history of the nation when Yahweh would afflict judgment on His covenant people. He talks about the day was coming. He says the day shall set them ablaze. This period is more precisely defined as the great and terrible day of the Lord. In Malachi 4.5, he says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Yahweh. So this day refers to a certain period, a specific event. Yeshua tells us that the predicted Elijah that was to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord was who? John the Baptist. Alright, Matthew 11.14. He says, If you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So the Lord says to Malachi, I'm going to send Elijah before the great and terrible judgment. Yeshua said, John was Elijah. Guess what? The judgment's coming. This enables us to determine the time of the event referred to as the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's a period of time we're near John the Baptist. It seems clear that the allusions to the judgment of the Jewish nation in AD 70 when their city and temple were destroyed. And the entire fabric of Judaism was destroyed. Well, what is this unquenchable fire that John talks about? Well, the key to understanding this phrase, I think, is found in Jeremiah. Again, Jeremiah predicts this judgment. He says, But if you do not listen to me and keep the Sabbath, day holy, by not carrying a load, or coming through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it will devour the places of Jerusalem, the palaces of Jerusalem, and not be quenched. So here's a fire that's not going to be quenched. Now Israel didn't heed the warnings. And as a result, Jerusalem and the temple of God were burned to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, is Jerusalem burning today? No. I mean, just go on Google Maps. You know, go to, you know, go over there and you can, you can see, alright, there's no fire going up right now. But the text says it's going to not be quenched. It's going to be an unquenchable fire. An unquenchable fire is not a fire that burns forever. So what's the phrase mean then? It's a fire that can't be quenched until the divine purpose has been accomplished in that fire. In other words, man can't extinguish it. Man can't quench it. It does go out, 
But it goes out. When's a fire go out? When the fuel's gone. When Jerusalem was burned to the ground, the fire went out. It accomplished its purpose. That was the end of the Jewish nation. Look at, let's go on to Matthew 5.22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Everyone who says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. But whoever says, you fool, in other words, that's really bad stuff back then, okay? <laughs> you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. All right, see, there you go. We got hell there, right? Well, again, hell's not there, so what is this word? It's Gehenna. The word hell here is Gehenna. Now, we looked at Gehenna in our last study. Again, let me remind you, it's used 12 times, 11 times in the Gospel, only once by James. It is not speaking of some eternal place. It's talking about the dump outside of Jerusalem. It's a place where they threw refuge. It's a place where judgment took place. It has nothing to do with hell. Yeshua taught His disciples in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body and are able to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, Notice that Matthew doesn't use the word punishment, torment, or eternal. He used destroy, which means it's gone, all right? Yeshua was speaking here to Jews that were living under the law of Moses. Throughout his ministry, he made continual reference to the judgment or wrath of God that was soon to come upon them. The unfaithful Jews, those who rejected Christ as the anointed of God, were to be destroyed while those of the faithful remnant would be spared. Now, as the disciples went out, they were not to fear death at the hands of the unbelieving brethren. They could kill them. But that's all they could do. But he says, don't fear them, but fear God. In other words, don't be worried about them. You keep your mind on Yahweh. Focus on Him. Because He's the one who has the power to not only kill your body, but extinguish you forever. See, they couldn't do that. They could just deal with the body. That's all they could do. Look at Matthew 16, 18. I like this verse. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. King James, of course, says the gates of hell. What are the gates of hell? Hell has gates so people don't get in there? (laughs) They want to keep people out, so they put gates up. You know? What does it mean, the gates of Hades? What's he saying? The, The gates of Hades won't stop the church. Yeshua is telling His disciples that even His death, passing through the gates of Hades, Hades is death, Yeshua said, I might pass through death. That's not going to stop it. That's not going to prevent the church, the remnant of God, from becoming a reality. That won't stop. Death will not stop Him. And that's what He's talking about here. Because He's going to be resurrected. It's not talking about a literal place that has some gates on it somewhere. All right? Let's look at a couple of verses that believers are very familiar with. Most believers have these verses memorized, but they don't understand them. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not go to hell and eternally suffer forever the rest of their lives. Oh, that doesn't, your verse doesn't say, your version doesn't say, they won't perish, but have eternal life. See, here's the, concre- the contrast here. You perish or you have life. Those who trust in Christ... They don't perish. The Greek word perish is just literally referring to death. To be gone. Paul taught the same thing in Romans 6.23. He says the wages of sin is the death. 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Yeshua our Lord. So again, we have a contrast. We have death and we have eternal life. Not eternal punishment, not torment in the place called hell. In the context of Paul's dissertation to Rome, the death refers to the sentence given to Adam, who was guilty of the sin. Paul's message is that a life in Adam would result in the death. While a life of faith in Christ brings everlasting life. Again, the contrast is death and life. Not eternal torture or eternal life. I think this is powerful. The Greek scholar and New Testament translator, R.F. Weymouth, he writes this, talking about these words here. My mind fails to conceive a grosser misinterpretation of language then when five or six of the strongest words which the Greek tongue possesses, signifying destroy or destruction, are explained to mean maintaining an everlasting but wretched existence. To translate black as white is nothing to this. He's saying you're taking Greek words that mean destroy, be gone, and making them mean not destroy, but live on forever in a miserable existence. He says this is ridiculous. Matthew 25, 46. These will go away into everlasting punishment to put the righteous into everlasting life. Alright? Here we have a comparison between eternal punishment and eternal life. Now the word eternal is the same in both. Alright? Eternal is the Greek word ionios from ion, which means existing at all times, perpetual, pertaining to an unlimited duration of time. So people argue if right, if the righteous get eternal life and the wicked get eternal punishment, it's the same on both sides. So if, if the righteous people get life, then the wicked get eternal punishment, right? Isn't that what the verse says? Yeah, that's true. The question is, what is eternal punishment? That's the question. What's it mean? Right, as we have seen from other scripture, punishment is death. The wages of sin is death. Death. So what the wicked get is eternal death. It is talking about the result of an action and not the action itself. The punishment is death. Death is eternal. That's it. You don't come back from it. Alright, if you don't trust Christ, there's no coming back from that. The destruction of the wicked in the lake of fire is permanent. It's a punishment that can't be reversed. The act of punishing will come to an end, but the consequences will last forever. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. If you're perishing, this is foolish. Why is it foolish? Well, I think verse gives us a, a clue in 1 Corinthians 1.24. But to those who are the called. To those who are called, the gospel comes to life. To those who are perishing, they don't get it. The Bible teaches that the reward of believers is everlasting life. While punishment of the wicked is just as the Scriptures state, it's death. Which is the opposite of life. As the wicked will have no escape from death, it's an eternal punishment. Jude, our verse that we kind of started all this on, talks about the punishment of eternal fire. Now people say, well see the fire is eternal, it just keeps burning and burning. Stop for a minute. Get those preconceived notions out of your head. Who or what is it that are exhibited as an example of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire? What's the reference to? It's to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
are they still burning? No. Okay? You can go over there today and you can see their ash. And I showed you pictures of it today. It's done. It's toast. It's gone. But there's no fire there today. Well, it says eternal fire. How can it be eternal if it goes out? Listen. It is the cities that are an example of the punishment of eternal fire. The cities, they're not burning. The fire is said to be eternal because the destruction is eternal. The destruction those fires brought is eternal. That's Those cities are gone. It's permanent. It's never ending. Look at Revelation 14, 10 through 11. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image. Now, doesn't this sound like hell? It does, all right? At first glance, it seems to conform to the traditional idea. You know, you got this sulfurous, hellfire, merciless, eternal, tormenting, helpless souls going on. But notice the setting for the passage. You got to read the context, all right? From the context, we see these events are describing Jerusalem and its destruction. This is not taking place in hell. This is on earth, all right? This is right before the return of Christ. This place is, these, Jerusalem is being absolutely destroyed. And it describes the punishment of what will befall Jerusalem's inhabitants who worship the beast in his image and have not trusted Christ. They're rejecting the Messiah. They are suffering. At a, at a recent conference, I had a person ask me, if you don't believe in hell, how do you evangelize? What does that question mean? Okay, listen. Do we Are we supposed to scare people into heaven? Is that how you get saved? We're going to make you really scared. So then the best evangelism is this. Turn or burn. Right? I don't think that's good evangelism. All right? I don't think it's biblical, people. Where do you see that? If you go to the book of Acts, which records the evangelistic efforts of the early church, the early church has got the gospel. They're starting to spread the gospel. They're giving the message. What do they do? Do they warn of the fires of hell? Do they say, you turn and burn? No. There's only one passage, one passage in the book of Acts that talks about the punishment of the wicked. And the apostles are talking about Yeshua, and they say this, and it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet, speaking of Yeshua, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Those who reject Christ, he says, are going to be destroyed. Not tortured for eternity. The apostles never talk about a place like the traditional view of hell. They don't do it. Look at 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. The fate of mankind can't be stated, I don't think, any simpler than this. His brethren that accept Yeshua... As the Son of God, they're going to receive a reward of eternal life. The opposite lay in store for those who refuse Him. They would not have life. If they don't receive Christ, they don't have life. Paul declared that victory over death was through Christ. So those who don't trust Christ, they get death. You know, translating terms like Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, Tartarus, in a manner that denotes a place of eternal Conscious torment, I think, is a perversion of the Word of God. Insertion of the word hell into any Bible verse can only be for the purpose of misleading the reader into a falsely held preconception of the translator. As with all other pagan concepts, 
hell has to be predetermined prior to coming to the Scriptures. As the original language doesn't use the term, nor does it represent any evidence to support the existence of a place of eternal torment. So then, where did the traditional view of hell come from? Where did we come up with this? Okay, he says Dante. I think that's true. I think Dante really pushed this forward, but let's go back a little ways. If you do a study of church history, early church history, it'll reveal that the teaching of hell was foreign to the earliest followers of Christ. You're not going to read about it, all right? The doctrines of eternal torment in hell are the product of a domino effect that began with the acceptance of the pagan doctrine of the eternal soul. Alright? First of all, soul is a horrible translation. Because we think of soul as something. Okay? It's it's part of us. We got a soul and we got this and we got that. Alright? We're going to get into that a little bit here. Um, once that doctrine was accepted, though, that man is is not mortal. Man is immortal. That's basically the doctrine of the eternal soul. They're saying man was created immortal. Alright? Once that was accepted, that man had a nature that it couldn't die. It naturally followed that his punishment also has to be eternal. Man's eternal, his punishment has to be eternal. As the souls of the wicked were eternal, punishment must be eternal, so hell had to become a place of eternal conscious torment. Alright? Now the concept of the soul originated with Greek philosophers some 300 years before the time of Christ. You don't see this in the Hebrew Scriptures. In the 2nd century, it found its way into the early church where it became a fundamental truth of the Roman Catholic Church. Through the Nicene Council, 325 A.D., it was reinforced by other councils that convened for the next hundred years, just reinforcing the Catholic Church. So where did the teaching that a man has an eternal nature that transcends death come from? Well, historical evidence reveals that it first appeared in the ancient Egyptians. All right? That's why they buried these people and stuck all this stuff with them, because they're going, they're going on. You know, they have an eternal spirit, and they're going on, they need all this junk, all right? With the expansion of the Greeks under Alexander, the Egyptian philosophy of life and death became subject to be examined by the Greek philosophers. Well, Plato is credited with modifying the Egyptian philosophy of men having two natures so that it could be incorporated into the religion of the Greeks. So Plato's really the one who started all this stuff. All right, I mean, yeah, the Egyptians did, but Plato took that and really developed it. He taught that man had a nature that lived on after death and went to a higher place of being. Plato taught the soul, whose inseparable attitude is life, will never admit of life's opposite death. Okay, soul can't die. That's Plato, all right? Thus, the soul is shown to be immortal. And since immortal, indestructible. We believe that there is such a thing as death to be sure, and is this anything but the separation of the soul and body? Being dead is the attainment of this separation. When the soul exists in herself and separate from the body, and the body is parted from the soul, this is death. Death is merely the separation of the soul from the body. See, he's making a dichotomy here that the Jews never had. All right? But the Greeks prided themselves on superior intellect and philosophy, the philosophers had been teaching an undying nature of man, and the teaching of the Greek philosophers found its way into Jewish society 300 years prior to the birth of Yeshua through the Pharisees and the Hellenization movement. See, the Pharisees bought on to all this stuff that Plato was teaching. All right, The early convent, converts to Christianity bought the 
brought this Greek philosophy into the church with him of the eternal soul, and then it just started spreading. Origen, who lived from 185 to 254, was the first person to attempt to organize a Christian doctrine into a systematic theology. He was an admirer of Plato and believed in the immortality of the soul that it would depart to an everlasting reward or an everlasting punishment. In Origen de Principalis, he wrote, The soul, having a substance and life of its own, shall after its departure from the world be rewarded according to its deserts, being destined to attain either inheritance of eternal life and blessedness, if its actions shall have procured this for it, or to be delivered up to eternal fire and punishment, if the guilt of its crimes shall have brought it down to this. All right? Well, then we come along to Augustine. And for Augustine, death meant the destruction of the body, but the conscious soul would continue to live in either a blissful state with God or an agonizing state of separation from God. In the city of God, he wrote, It's therefore called immortal because, in a sense, it does not cease to live and to feel, while the body is called mortal because it can be forsaken of all life and cannot by itself live at all. The death, then, of the soul takes place when God forsakes it as the death of the body when the soul forsakes it. Now, Richard Tarnas, in his book, The Passion of the Western Mind, points to this influence when he said, It was Augustine's formulation of Christian Platonism that was to permeate virtually all the medieval Christian thought in the West. So enthusiastic was the Christian integration of the Greek spirit that Socrates and Plato were frequently regarded as divinely inspired and pre-Christian saints. This influence of the Greek, we can't, you can't begin to overemphasize the, the Greek mindset that has been pushed upon the church. Well, centuries later, Thomas Aquinas, who was lived from 1225 to 1274, he crystallized the doctrine of the immortal soul, the summa theological. He taught that the soul is a conscious intellect and cannot be destroyed. Soul just lives on, so you got to have a place for it to go. A few centuries later, the leaders of the Protestant Reformation generally accepted the traditional views, so they became entrenched in the traditional Protestant teaching. So for the most part, this is what the church believes today. But is it biblical? Well, the Jewish Encyclopedia states this. The belief that the soul continues its existence after the dissolution of the body is a matter of philosophical and theological speculation rather than of simple truth and is accordingly nowhere taught in the Holy Scriptures. The International Bible Encyclopedia states, We are influenced always more or less by the Greek Platonic idea that the body dies Yet soul is immortal. Such an idea is utterly contrary to the Israelite consciousness and is found nowhere in the Old Testament. The essence of life, the act of breathing, taking breath, the problem with the English term soul is that no actual equivalent of the term or idea behind it represented in the Hebrew language. See, the Hebrews don't have this concept of soul that we have so grown so fond of. The Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible makes this comment. The word soul, he's talking about nephesh here, the word soul in the English, though it has to some extent naturalized the Hebrew idiom, frequently carries with it overtones, ultimately coming from philosophical Greek, Platonism, and from Ophism and Gnosticism, which are absent in nephesh. 
In the Old Testament, it never means the immortal soul, but is essentially the life principle or the living being or the self as the subject of appetite and emotion, occasionally of volition. All right, so this whole idea of nephesh has been translated soul. Nephesh means breath. And the Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now we have this in Genesis 2.7. And Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. King James translation says. New America says a living being. It's nephesh. He became alive because he's got breath. If you have breath, you're alive. People say, well, that means soul. People have a soul. Well, you got a problem then, because when you go to this verse in Genesis 2.19, out of the ground Yahweh formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called the living creature, Nephesh, it was its name. Now what's interesting here, the term living being in verse 7 and living creature in verse 19 are both Nephesh. But the translating committee of the King James Version rendered Nephesh as soul in 2.7 while rendering the same term as living creature in 2.19 because they don't want to believe animals have a soul and soul is something special, so they did that deal with it, all right? In the writings of Moses, the Hebrew term Nephesh is used in reference to the life that was given both man and animal without implying any distinction between the two. It's simply breath. If you're breathing, you're alive. You quit breathing, you're dead. Now, while most believe that Adam was created an eternal being, the Bible does not teach this. If he were, if, if Adam was created eternal, what was the purpose of the tree of life? Why did he need a tree of life and why was he banned from a tree of life after he sinned? I think proof of this is found in Genesis 3.22. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground, which he was taking. What did God do when he kicked him out of the garden? The garden is the temple of God. It's the place where God dwells. Adam was brought into fellowship with God because of his sin. He lost that fellowship. He's outside the garden. What did God do to make sure he didn't come back? Put two angels standing at the gate of the garden with flaming swords, keeping, you're not coming back in, you don't get the tree of life, because if you eat it, you live as a sinner, and you live forever, you're not, that's not gonna happen. Adam was created mortal, he was always subject to death. By establishing the tree of life, God had given him the means to procure everlasting life in his presence. The tree is in the presence. When you get to the book of Revelation, and you get to heaven, what's there? The tree of life's back there again. It's God who provides the life. Adam sinned in eating the fruit of the forbidden tree, and for this he was subject to condemnation, which is death. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes, For this perishable must put on the imperishable. He's saying the man is perishable, but in Christ you put on the imperishability. And the mortal must put on immortality. Man is mortal. But in Christ, you put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that death is swallowed up in victory. Why? Because now we have immortality. And death can't hurt us. See, at the second coming, immortality was given to believers and only believers. The mortal put on immortality. All 
non-believers perish because they're mortal. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown write this. Nowhere is the immortality of the soul distinct from the body taught. A notion which may erroneously have derived from the heathen philosophers. Ken and Gouge writes this, and I think it's very important. He says, when the Greek and the Roman mind instead of the Hebrew mind came to dominate the church, they did come to dominate it. When they did, he said, this occurred a there occurred a disaster in the doctrine and practice from which we have never recovered. I agree, we've never recovered from the Greek mindset because we all have this Greek mindset that the soul lives forever. That's Greek, that's not Hebrew. And because the soul lives forever, we've got to find a place to contain the wicked souls somewhere. they got to go somewhere. See, if they perish, then we don't need to hell, right? But if they're alive, we've got to find a place to put them. Well, people say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We go to the New Testament and we got the story about Lazarus and the rich man. Ah, uh, that does, that teaches hell, doesn't it? Well, many try to use that, Luke 16, 19 31, as a proof that there will be conscious life after death and it's a place of eternal torment, hell. First of all, this is a parable. It's the fifth of five parables. They're all teaching the same thing in that text. And these parables are teaching some great moral principles. They're not exact. They're not laying out this is exactly what happens. It's a parable. So if people want to say, well, this is a picture of hell, then i got a couple of questions to ask you. Do people actually have conversations between people in heaven and hell? we got a conversation going on in Luke 16. You know? The rich man says, hey, can, can you take your finger and dip it in the water and put it on my tongue and cool? I'm in torment in these flames. Can those in heaven see people burning in hell? Can you imagine? Here you are, you're in heaven and it's a blissful place. You're in the presence of God and you look over and there's your loved one and they're screaming and writhing in agony and pain and they're burning and you're going, well, I don't need to see this. How do you, how's that heaven? Would a finger dipped in water actually lessen a person's torment in hell? Listen, if you want to understand what's going on here, I recommend you get Glenn, Glenn Hill did a message on the Lazarus and the rich man and, and kind of explain what's going on here. So see Glenn. Glenn will get you that message. Uh, get a hold of him. If you don't know how to get a hold of him, get a hold of me. I'll get a hold of him for you. But uh, he's got a great message on that. I would encourage you to listen to that because I don't have time to go into that now. All right. It is my opinion that the church, and that's why you have to study this, okay, because it's my opinion. It's my opinion that the church's doctrine comes more from Dante's Inferno, okay, than from the Bible. Because we don't find this in the Bible, but Dante's Inferno really laid this out. The Catholic Church has pushed this forward. It's an invention. Listen, it keeps people in bondage. Oh, you mess up, you're going there, okay? You're going to the bad place, all right? You know, what's, here's what's really interesting. Dante taught that the lowest level of hell, the place that was reserved for the worst sinners, anybody know what it was? It was freezing cold. Ever hear the expression, cold as hell? That's where it came from. The lowest level was freezing. Okay? That, I guess to Dante, it's worse to be cold than hot. Okay? So he, he made that up. Alright? Alright, so, listen, there's so much more in the scriptures, but, you know, trying to fit this into one, you know, unit so you can have it and, and hopefully get a, a good idea of what's going on here. And hopefully this study uh, has shown that the Scriptures don't support the teaching of the traditional view of believers suffering in, suffering in flames for eternity. Listen, man was not created 
immortal. Man is mortal until he trusts in Christ, and when he does, he puts on immortality. It is a gift. It is a gift. So if the Bible doesn't teach the doctrine of eternal conscious torment, why do so many believe it? Why do so many people believe this? So many Bible teachers, so many good Bible teachers. Why do so many people believe this if the Bible doesn't teach it? Well, I think that S.W. Foss gives the answer in his poem, The Calf Path. I want to read you just an excerpt from The Calf Path. He says, For men are prone to go it blind along the calf paths of the mind and work away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. They follow in the beaten track and out and in and forth and back and still their devious course pursue to keep the path that others do. People, once that calf goes down the path, it's just easier to follow it. And everybody's reading somebody else and they're following somebody else and it's like nobody goes back to the Bible to read what the Bible has to say. We just get on that path and we follow it. Well, I want you to know that everybody's not on that path. Okay, there are some good men who have broken away from this calf path and understand that the Bible doesn't teach this. Uh, they don't teach eternal conscious torment. And these are men like F.F. F. Bruce. Ever heard of F.F. F. Bruce? All right. He's an analogist. John Stott. I'm sure you're familiar with John Stott. Clark H. Pinnock. How about N.T. Wright? These men do not teach this doctrine of hell. How about Glenn Hill? You ever heard of Glenn Hill? All right. He doesn't teach this doctrine. Okay. So, again, here's the bottom line. I'm asking you to be a Berean. Look at the Scriptures, pour over them, you know, find out what they say. I hope that you're not too disappointed that your loved ones don't have to burn in hell forever. Okay? You know, it's just, again, if this is what the Bible taught, I'd be on board. I got no dog in the fight. Alright? I'm going to heaven. Okay? I know that, absolutely. But I just don't see the Bible putting this forth. And you can't scare somebody into heaven. They have to realize the depth of their sin and trust in Christ to go there. And that is a sovereign work of God. It doesn't happen by us getting up, you know, working up the worst fear thing we can get and laying it before man. All right, I've said more than enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us the heart of Bereans, Father, that we would not accept or reject this. We would study it out for ourselves. We'd be diligent to find out what your word really teaches. Lord, thank you for your grace to us, for the opportunity, the day in which we live when study helps are so available that we can dig and study and break down the languages and the culture and the traditions and we can understand truly what your word says. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that in your son, Lord, we have eternal life. Amen. All right. Questions and comments this morning on what we talked about. <coughs> Veronica. I totally agree that, you know, now in the New Testament, you know, when people die, they go to heaven or perish. But in the Old Testament, there's a couple instances, like when Samuel was brought up from somewhere, that he was somewhere. And if he was in a, in a place called Sheol, um, that may have existed. And then in the New Testament, it teaches that Jesus went down and preached to the people. Right. And during the resurrection, they would have been brought up and judged. But So the Old Testament does somewhat teach that there may have been a place. Where
Okay, uh, and I have no problem with that. And again, we didn't have time to get into everything here, but I think those who died prior to Christ went to Sheol, went to Hades, went to the place of the dead. It was an unconscious place of waiting because we have a resurrection and the believers are resurrected and the non-believers are resurrected, but you get the revelation of what happens. And death and Hades, Sheol, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. They're gone, all right? So yeah, I believe that in the Old Covenant, men died, they went to a place waiting until the judgment, because they weren't judged before the judgment. But once the judgment happens, from here on out, from that judgment on out, every person who lives or dies, at the moment they die, they're either in the presence of the Lord, or they're gone. Jeff? And that means that the Lazarus and the rich man story should be interpreted as Sheol and not Right. Right. And that Lazarus and rich man story, you got to get into the culture. They had this belief about this whole Abraham's bosom thing that the Lord is playing on. But if you don't get into history and understand what they believe, you'll never get what's going on in there. John? Uh, the Young's interprets eternal, particularly an eternal punishment, as age during. Right. In other words, at the end of that age, it was over. Right. Right, right. and unrighteous man just went and you know he died and he, you know again the judgment didn't take place until the judgment took place you know, at, you know that's the idea Daniel talks about there's a resurrection of in Gen, Daniel 12 of the righteous and the unrighteous you know um, Darren asked from Scottsdale Arizona asked what is the second death I believe that the second death is is being annihilated okay the first death is physical the second death is you're gone you're done you're done forever everybody's going to die physically all right Believer and unbeliever, but there's a second death for believers where they are, unbelievers, I'm sorry, where they are gone, you know? I don't know, we, we kind of this idea that people have to, God has to threaten torture, you know, to get people to like them. Um, I just, you know, I don't see that. Anything else, Garrett? Okay. All right, um, I'll tell you what, it's really late. Let's stand together to be dismissed in prayer. Father, I thank you this morning for the privilege to be able to look at your word freely and openly. I thank you, Lord, for all the benefits, the privileges you've given us in this country. Father, again, I just ask, give us a heart of Bereans. Help us to be diligent to study the truth of your word, that we may apply it to our lives. Father, I, I realize the more we know of the word of God, the more we understand you. And the more we understand you, the closer our fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the word of God. Amen. Amen.